This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Everybody, welcome to the VP ZD Show. I'm ZD, and this is VP. What's up, VP? It's good to be here. It's been, I think, we had a week off, so it's been two weeks. So much to catch up on. We did. We're not those like compulsive content makers. We don't make content just to make content. We only talk when we have a lot to say. And this week we have a lot to say. A lot to say. (laughs) I'll give a quick, oh, it has. I'll give a quick summary of what we're going to hit. We're going to talk about Elon Musk. We're going to talk about this um, Twitter doc, uh, Risa Hoshino. We're going to talk about a a CDC survey that called me. I'm going to talk a bit about the Stanford nurses strike and the difficulties around staffing these days. Fauci saying the pandemic is over. Oh. Uh, yeah, oh, I, uh, he didn't really say that, but- uh, <laughs> Who knows gonna, what he's let's saying? Just say Who knows what he's I'm saying? I'm gonna round up. Let's just round up yeah. to the pandemic's over. Or, or, uh, or, or let's just say he did a flip-flop on- <laughs> Another flip-flop, another flip-flop. All right, yeah, that'll be good. Uh, he's flip-flopping to what I've been saying, but yeah. So uh, EUA for kids yes. uh, vaccine. Yes. Um, the approaching a million dead in the US and talking about that. And and uh, a, a little bit on groupthink. So I think that's what we're going to try to hit. We'll see what we actually hit. Um, so Elon Musk buys Twitter. The He's like just petting a cat like a Dr. Evil. Just, oh, excellent. Now I own America's town square that actually hardly any Americans actually are on, but the press uses constantly. Well, what, are your, the, what are your thoughts And here? the press is having a heart attack. I saw some headlines saying <laughs> oh, white yeah. supremacists, Nazis, uh, you know, um, <laughs> Horrible people will come out of the woodwork. I mean, wow, they're really painting it to be dire. Um, yep. I think they are, it's interesting because he's onto something. You know, Elon is onto something that of all the social media platforms, this is the platform that I think has the most relevance for the news media. They're addicted yeah. to it. They're on it all day. They may be writing their little articles, but in the background, they've got Twitter open. And him buying it, I think, is that he recognizes its importance in shaping the narrative in the mainstream media. And by having you know, uh, sort of different rules in Twitter, you might be able to allow it to go in a different direction. And I think they're afraid of it just because of that. Um, But it seems to me, and the thing we got to talk about is that, you know, the, the core issue, the thing that led him to acquire it was that he feels like Twitter is having too heavy a hand in determining what content should be on the platform. And he thinks the hand should be very light. It should be only, you know, if you have a serious threat of violence against somebody else, if you dox them, if you incite violence, yeah, those tweets got to go. But if you merely have an unpopular opinion about an issue, uh, if you say something about, um, you know, vaccines that may be disputed, uh, if you say something about drugs that may be disputed, he thinks a lot of that needs to be permitted. Um, And I think that that's different than the way they've been trying to ratchet up the moderation where they really are getting stricter and stricter in terms of what you can and cannot say. And I think he's more of sort of a classic old school free speech guy. You're right. And I, so it's just different different ways to look at this 
forum, right? Now it's a private company, so you can do whatever you want, right? It's not a, you know, it's not a, a government owned entity. Right. Taking it private allows him to, you know, control that aspect of it. But what I think is interesting is like, you know, the right is like just celebrating like, oh my gosh, Trump's going to be back on Twitter. It's <laughs> going to be great. You know, and Trump's like, I've already got my own. Well, actually you do a better Trump than me, man. What would Trump <laughs> say about you? He's already been talking about this truth. Done. Truth social. He's like, I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick to truth social. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Elon's a great guy, but we got truth social. That's what he, I think he said. Elon's a great guy, but we got truth social. Yeah, <laughs> man. I I just wait. I wait two weeks to do a VPZD show just so I can hear your Trump, man. It's like <laughs> it's, it's disturbingly good. Um, so you know those guys are like you know celebrating, and the left, the far left in particular, which by the way, here's an interesting statistic. I I heard this recently. I forget the source. The the extreme lefties and the extreme righties are actually very similar. They're mm -hmm. yep. equally affluent and equally white. Really? And oh, they tend, to, oh, that's where I heard a Jonathan Heights piece in The Atlantic oh, about yes. the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And, he's, and so these two fringes of white rich people actually run the conversations online because they dominate, because they're the loudest. Whereas what Height calls, I call the alt middle, he calls the exhausted majority. Everybody else wow. is just like, geez, I'm going to shut up because I don't want to get I don't want to get a bunch of darts in my back opening my mouth on Twitter, and um, so the the far left on this one is is freaking out, saying this guy's an online troll himself. He's a bully. He's going to make Twitter into a total shit show. I'm like, have you seen what Twitter is now? Right. And uh, right. And, and and so on and so forth. And what's hilarious is in the setting of all this. Elon tweets this meme that uh, kind of went viral. And I don't know if you saw this, yes, but it's got- he's in the same spot and then the axis moves. Yes, 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 yes. So, so it's like the year 2008. I'll, I'll paint the picture for yeah. people since this is an audio podcast and a news show, Vinay. Classic news new, show, classic, classic news. Classic news show. <laughs> Walter Cronkite, 2022. So in the year 2008, there's a graph or, or a line, left, center, and right. There's a guy, a conservative on the right. There's a, it says my fellow liberal on the left. And then it's got me. And it's, he's just left of center, just a little left of center, and everybody's smiling. Then in 2012, you have the same graph. The guy who says me, who is uh, right, left of center, is now a little bit more towards the center. Mm -hmm. And the my fellow liberal, question mark, mm -hmm. is running to the left. Mm -hmm. And the conservative is still smiling right in the right there. 2021, <laughs> the me is now right of center. Uh, the concern, uh, the the progressive is now way on the left, and is it says woke quote progressive, and he's just saying bigot and pointing at the me, and the conservative on the right is still smiling, still in the same place, and just saying lol. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this is it. Like the left went way left and did all this crazy stuff, pushed like left center people to the to what now seems to be the right, and the the far right is just laughing the whole time. You know, I think there's a lot of truth in the meme. I don't know about, you know, where Elon falls on it, but there's a lot of truth in the meme, which is that, you know, what it means to be progressive has shifted a lot. And um, the extreme left politics um, is off-putting to many people. I mean, one of the characteristics of the extreme left politics is not just, you know, we want X, Y, or Z. It's that if you don't want what we want, 
um, you're a horrible human being on par with the, you know, the worst people in all of human history. So it's sort of this yeah. really extreme kind of splitting. And I think that itself is very off-putting. I mean, if you're trying to build a coalition and you call anyone who even slightly disagrees with you a bigot or some other sort of extreme term, uh, how are you going to build a big tent? I mean, it's not a strategic position. I, I really don't understand it. But that's, yeah. what's, that's what's unpopular these days. It's 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 um it's a real th th this is sort of the pathology of the natural evolution of sort of these human stages. So this this multicultural pluralism, progressivism that started in that really kind of attained critical mass in the '60s and now is the dominant paradigm in the West. It really is, um, kind of superseded the pure scientific. Uh, hierarchical rationalism that preceded it. Now it's more like, oh, you know, all these views actually we got to consider and so on. All of that's great, but when you start to hit the apex of that and it becomes the cultural norm, you start to see the shadow side of it. And I think the shadow side of it is this closed-minded, you know, everybody's a racist, a racist if you're not thinking the same way. Now, now, what's interesting about this though, is there's a level, you know, the level prior to this sort of rationalist enlightenment stage is the is this power stage where it's all about might equals right and it's a pure dominator hierarchy and you, you talk about old tribalism and that kind of thing. And looking at like, the this is, like, this is one of the interesting epiphenomenon of this. If you look at what happens in Russia and Ukraine, and what happened to the group minds around the West and, and the Russian sphere of influence and how this played out, you can actually look at the West actually kind of rallies around this idea that, oh, no, wait, we actually are this uh, multicultural, human rights, uh, progressive kind of eth ethos, even containing uh, different ethos uh, uh, that that aren't fully aligned with that, but as a as a group mind, this is how we think. And when Russia is in a more power, like might equals right, Putin's more of a tribalist, like I'll just take over this country and so on. And what happened instantly was the entire West solidified in a group mind around no, this is not okay, and in fact acted so incredibly rapidly to shut you know shut the economy down, to have these sanctions, to start delivering arms, and and there was a lot of alignment in the West, and that's the kind of example of how a group mind emerges around an ethos like this multicultural progressive, you know, green meme, if you mm -hmm. read Ken Wilber, mm -hmm. and it happened very fast. Whereas the, the Russia power sort of meme is so is so outdated that the West just immediately rejected it. So, so even though there's a lot of pathology in that sort of, you know, progressive arm. Mm -hmm. There's also a lot of, like Putin just assumed, he saw, like, he's like, oh man, this is a this is a West that would put their pronouns, you know, uh, in their military. Like, they're, they're so weak. Like, all I have to do is do this and they will back down instantly. But he doesn't realize that actually it's a more advanced way of thinking when it actually functions right. You know, so it's interesting, I, but it I, interesting. I guess I'm curious if like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I, I I totally agree with your characterization of that. The response from the West has been, you know, rather, you know, by Western, by by the modern standards, quite unified, you know, and quite, you know, uh, forceful and powerful. But I guess I feel like I want to credit the West centrists. It was the centrists that were able to do it. Um, because I think that even on the extreme left side, they're the ones who want to go even further and create no-fly zones and push us into World War III. Am I wrong? Oh, yeah. You know, that there's no, some no, of no, those, No, 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 you're right? not. 
No, you're absolutely right. Actually, let's clarify this because when, when even when you say a centrist, yeah. a centrist in the West is still full on in that post in their culture 60s. progressive, right? Exactly, yes, exactly. You're right, you're right. So you're right, you're right. But the far left would, oh, let's have NATO no fly zones. Let's end up in a conflict that. Okay, so this is where I, this is where I, this yes. is where it becomes existentially threatening. Yes. You have these group minds that emerge from the sum of their parts that that are unapparent to the parts. So you and I are both neurons in this great Western mind that arose, you know, and that, that we don't really directly control, but we're like little neurons in it. You know, we like, and we dislike, and we have, and we vote and we do that. Those are our neurotransmitters. But now you have this big Western mind that has risen up in response to Russia's uh, actions. But then you have the Russian group mind, which is actually much more controlled by media and so on directly by the Russians. And the thing about group minds is they don't, they don't have a corpus callosum that connects them. So now you have actually a situation that may be even more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis because in those days, you at least had some conversations happening. Now you have these social media-enabled and media-enabled group minds that you could see they don't understand each other at all. And a, a, a one nuclear provocation, they're just gonna yeah. be like, well, let's just bomb these people into submission. Right. Uh, you, you know, it's a dangerous situation. So dangerous. But back to the yeah. Elon point that I think led to this. I mean, to your point, I think people who are on the far right um, so some of them may be celebrating. I don't think they should be celebrating. And people on the far left, I think, are the ones that are feeling kind of crushed by it. And I think maybe that is actually a little bit more accurate. But um, the real winner is probably most of us who are in the middle uh, on all these yeah. issues. Um, and who, uh, you know, because the thing about the censoring that Twitter was doing, this platforming, I guess, the stuff that I've seen, at least in COVID-19 space, the some of the things that have been labeled as misleading or false or, you know, um, or led to like locking people out of accounts, they're not really crazy views. I mean, they're views within the range that are, I think are reasonable, um, you know, that, that lockdowns are harmful, that, you know, maybe cloth masking two-year-olds doesn't work. I saw somebody got in trouble for that or um, for saying that um, m uh, this person said something like, most immunocompromised people are not at as high risk as they think. And, you know, that's a really sort of debatable claim because- how do we know what they think, you know? And, and, right. right. And a claim like that, like most immunocompromised people are not as high risk as they think. I mean, it also might mean that somebody might feel like I have a little bit of exercise induced asthma. I also am immunocompromised, which I think would be, you know, a stretch. Um, you know, so it's a defensible claim. It's very vague and broad. And I saw somebody got punished on Twitter for saying that. How can Twitter go in to start to police the very gray kind of language like that? Um, who knows? I mean, you know, you're, uh, you know, Z-Dog, you're not at as high risk at a heart attack as you think. Oh, is that true or false? I, you know, how do I know what, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, indis oh, yeah. it's an indisputable claim. I see you running yeah. all the time. You say, you know, you don't, you're, you're trying to watch your weight. You're not at high, as high risk as you think. You know, if I said that to you, could you censor me? Actually, I'm exactly as high risk as I think. You know, how are we to even process such a debate? Um Oh, it's, it's, and, and how, exactly. And how can you let, so they say, well, okay, well, big, big tech was making the decision by committee before. Now it's big Elon, one guy, a billionaire. And so the argument is, well, what's, what's he, you know, how is he going to yeah, set up I, the moderation? I guess the, the, yeah. the difference I would, I mean, at least I think how he would articulate it is previously it was a committee of, you know, frankly, nitwits. I mean, it's committee of people who just yeah. aren't, aren't qualified to do it. And what he will say is that probably when you make rules that are more objective, like the rule is, okay, I cannot tell my followers, you know, um, you know, attack Z-Dog, uh, you know, hurt Z-Dog. I can't tell them Z-Dog's address or any personal information. 
Okay, that's the rule, right? You know, no doxing and no calls for violence. But I can say, you know, I love Z Dog. I think he's a once in a generation talent. Or you know, Z Dog, he's an imbecile, etc. You know, that to me, you know, um, if that if that's the rule, no violence, no doxing. It's 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 more objective. If the rule is, yeah. you know, I can't say that Z Dog overestimates his risk of cardiovascular disease. That's misinformation. He, you know what I mean? Like that's. Right. That's very subjective. And what we have allowed is the Twitter, whatever, this group of people led by that lawyer who, you know, got embroiled in all this, the group of, you know, do good. First of all, they're, they're generally young people, young people who believe the world would be better if we had more moderation, content moderation. They're moving into really, really murky, gray, subjective places and trying to create rules, which is impossible. Those rules will always be arbitrary about power. They can be misused. They can be used by people who don't know any better. I think Elon would say, I'm trying to make a few rules. My rules are much more objective. So that's why it's better. Yeah. And, you know, again, none of this addresses the issue of the fundamental problem here, which is there's not enough dialogue and there's a lot of like uh, groupthink and shouting right. at each other and right. virtue signaling, which brings us to the next topic of conversation, <laughs> which is related to all this. So <clears throat> someone sent me this piece by uh, Sarah Berwick, who wrote on Substack, who is Risa Hoshino. Um, were you able to look at this? I uh, I read it, but then you know, like a lot of things, when you start reading something and it gets half, I got too queasy. Re- <laughs> yeah, I got so queasy reading it, but it, you know, it's bad. I mean, uh, my my one line summary is: um, uh, there is a person uh, who is sort of a hashtag zero COVID person, mask in your sleep kind of, you know, an extremist in that sense, um, who was tweeting repeatedly that the things they had le- learned from their frontline experience and that upon further pressing this person, um, you could not identify frontline experience that was commensurate with the claims made because this person wasn't really working as a doctor as they described it. Yeah, that's roughly correct. And again, I don't know who this person is. I have not gone and investigated any of these claims, but uh, Dr. Risa Hoshino, who's a pediatrician, finished residency, I think in 2017, has been all over uh, the internet, uh, Instagram, et cetera, as a quote unquote influencer that came to prominence during COVID and has, you know, the tweets that were sampled here are, you know, the standard COVIDian kind yes, of angle. COVIDian like philosophy. Like one tweet says, if you had to listen to crying children all day who are devastated that they may never recover from long COVID and not being able to tell them that everything will be okay, would you still not wear a mask and then a mask emoji? And you know like, what? Well, I, I just want to pause you one second there. Yeah. This is the... This kind of rhetoric is so stupid in a few ways. It's One, the dumbest. The dumbest. Okay, yeah, it pisses okay. me off so okay. much. I mean, yeah. a few things that we could say. One, the CDC's estimate last week says that children have a 75% zero prevalence for COVID in this country. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Okay, so many of them have already had it. Number two, uh, almost anybody who is a thinking person realizes that eventually 90 plus, 95 plus percent of people in the world will get COVID. And so- is long COVID a kid, in kids a problem? I think the evidence is very weak. I don't just think that. Lars Hemkins has a meta-analysis proving that it's weak. We don't really know. But it, whether it's a problem or not, it's inevitable. All the kids are going to get COVID. And w- to what extent long COVID exists, we'll have to deal with. So 
wearing a cloth, a flimsy cloth mask over your earlobe while you eat a bag of pretzels on an airplane. <laughs> you know, that's not going to stop the, 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 the quote, kids from cry. And by the way, such a dramatic image that it just smells yeah. like it's not true. Right. Yeah, uh, t- absolutely. And, you know, this is, again, the classic posturing and yeah. virtue signaling about this stuff. Hey, let me let me read a couple more just because yeah, okay. they're really oh, good. God. And then we'll and then we'll see what the what the uh, what the claims are here. So. Not sure how someone can tell me to my face that, quote, COVID is over. As I stand there in my scrubs, N95 and face shield, exhausted from treating all the COVID positive patients who are either severely ill or have long COVID, unless you're us, you will never truly get it with a face palm emoji, hashtag stop the gaslighting. What's so the fa- this was- what was the face shield for, by the way? What's that do? Uh, it's a great question um, because she's got makeup on and it needs to be protected against spatter because uh, <laughs> well, she's an influencer. And this is important because the influencers, male and female, are generally attractive, more attractive than your average doctor that you'll see in the hey, clinic. Hey, do you think I have what it takes to be an influencer? Uh, dude, I have been <laughs> I have been saying that you should get an Instagram account and just start taking- I don't have like, scrubs be- that are tight enough. Get, dude, get up, just go out on the beach in a banana hammock and just pose. <laughs> so, you know, you know, that's something that Twitter needs to censor. If that was, <laughs> that, now that's where, that's where I agree with content moderation. It needs exactly. to be blocked from the can, internet. Oh God, that, no one wants to see, see that's, that. That's where you've doxed your own genitalia. You like you, you can't you can't have that. Um, <laughs> I want to I want to report this tweet for abuse on my audience. Um, listen. Um, so, you know, one interesting thing that came up related to this was, um, you know, in the course of my, uh, uh, the many weeks that I spend rounding, uh, you know, we're often summoned to the bedside of somebody with COVID-19, and typically it's blood clot because I'm a hematologist, so that's why they want me there. Um, and, you know, I, I wear my N95, um, uh, and um, uh, somebody made this excellent point that everyone was up in arms on the airplane thing, you know, now that they stripped, they, they did away with the, uh, the airplane, you know, intermittent cloth mask mandate on the airplane. And they're like, you know, you'll never really be safe on an airplane Z unless that guy next to you also wears the cloth mask, even if you wore an N95. <laughs> and then this person right. pointed out on Twitter that, you know, we go into the patient's rooms all the time. The patient often isn't wearing a mask. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we're wearing an N95 and or it's nothing. Good, yeah, yeah. And it's good enough for yep. a person with known and active covid Filling a a, a a dank twelve foot space with COVID plumes. Um, yep. So yep. anyway, or or tuberculosis. I mean, like yeah. it's it's a it, we we we've done this is a precedent. Now, what's interesting is so she said said a lot of interesting things, and the punchline of this is great. But she says, nine year old patient colon. Sorry, doc, I lost my train of thought again. She used to be a completely healthy A plus student and star athlete. This is a nine year old, but she got long COVID and she's now struggling in school, cannot walk upstairs, and has constant fatigue and palpitations. Please mask and vax for you and her. Okay. I guess the other, the other thing I want to say is everyone keeps telling that the vaccine prevents long COVID. Where is the data that that is where's true? Where's the data on that? Where's that? Right? I've never seen any such data. And uh, how can you conclude in a nine year old? That her, she's losing her train of thought. That's what nine-year-olds do. And and how what, a, a plus. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, lo- I forgot what you were saying. What were you saying? I mean, that happens to everybody. You know, <laughs> she's she's nine. Like my ten-year-old. How do you even call her an A plus student? She's in elementary school. But let me ask um, another question. Let's say we got a nine-year-old in the office who does describe like I don't feel as good as I used to feel or something like right. that. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. How do we separate? Are those symptoms attributable? to having had, I've heard these people say that they could have even had like an asymptomatic COVID, not felt anything, right? 
Right. And now they have all these symptoms. The other thing that happened to this nine-year-old Z is you close your yeah. school for 18 exactly months. What I was you don't say. let them yep. go on play dates. You know, yep. you make them sit in the house all day looking at the window. <laughs> uh, I saw somebody tweet that the only my toddler's only friend is his, the dog because we don't have play date. I mean, yeah. this is like Dude. cruelty to children ha- deprived ha- of a childhood, which is which is ha- causing the symptom then. You, you, okay, okay. So a nine-year-old is a highly empathic creature, yeah. is absorbing all the emotional energy around them. And here you have batshit crazy parents, and I say this with love because they're all my colleagues and friends, and including me at some times, that are, are energizing this child with anxiety, and the schools were closed, and there's no play dates, and there's too much structure time. An A-plus student and star athlete at nine ought to just get the fuck out into the world and play with their friends in the street. Like, why? are we making them be a star athlete at nine, right? So anyways, but who knows what's really going on here? The punchline of all these tweets, and they get worse. The tweets are progressively insane. This this woman actually interviewed Paul Offit at one point, was uh, cited as one of the more influential people on Instagram and so on until uh, Sarah <clears throat> investigated. Okay, what does she actually do? She's affiliated with Mount Sinai or something, but it turns out she was not on the front lines, uh, uh, the way that it was described and was actually in the public health department for schools in New York and so on and so forth. And you go, okay, maybe there's something here. Well, the proof is in the pudding when she deleted her Instagram, Twitter (laughs) and disappeared. And she's now (laughs) unfindable. Um, So, you know, this is again- Uh, Yeah, yeah. but but to be fair, you know, you know the feeling that just because I mean, you delete the account that. doesn't mean you're guilty. That's true. Doesn't mean That's you're true. guilty. You deleted your account out of innocence. That's true. And but I but I did a video about why I deleted it. Correct. She, uh, she's as far hiding. as I can tell, has disappeared. Now, well, again, well, I, yeah, but I mean, there may she, be an explanation. No, but yeah. I mean, she. I mean, the way the article was written, I felt like it is very likely she's guilty on all charges. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, the fact that she chose to hide, I think. Even if people are shitting on you for something true or false, I can understand why people would want to hide. So I don't say that. Yeah. Like, that to me is not no, the, the telltale. True. But the fact that yeah. like you know, there's no records of all these things that could easily be falsified. Yeah. But um, you know, it's interesting. The whole thing is interesting to me. I mean, obviously, you know, this this is an extreme example of something that's quite common. And I let me pull out a few threads and see if you agree. The common threads. Number one, you can gain a lot of followers by having a um, inflexible and intractable um, COVIDian position. There are lots yep. of people, okay? Number two, um, although health policy should be decided by the sober appraisal of population-level evidence and thinking about unanticipated consequences and even distant consequences, people are emotional and they often respond preferentially to anecdotal stories, okay? Yep. Three, Telling such anecdotal stories in pursuit of your zealot philosophy will enhance the follower gain over time. Yep. And four, there's no way to test the credibility of whether or not your bullshit stories are actually true or not. Yes. And I'll add number five, many doctors, quote unquote, physician influencers on social media fall into this category of unconfirmable stuff. Of course. You know, like- Of course. And, and they're just like, and, it's like a whole business of unconfirmable and, bullshit stories and threads. And, and 
Sickens Absolutely. Me. Now remember, you can become famous too and have a lot of supporters and a lot of juice for being a uh, in the antithesis tribe uh -huh. as a physician. So, uh -huh. it, to but, some but, okay, no, go, go on, go yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, and to some extent, there are you know like you look at the Malones and the McCulloughs as extreme examples, and then you can look at you know even someone like Jay Bhattacharya who came to to prominence taking a more antithesis uh, centrist antithesis antithesis position, um, but. Again, he's actually a health policy but, guy. And, and let, me, let yeah. me put some lines in between even those two people, like the Malones yeah, yeah. and the Bhattacharya. I mean, I guess I would say that you can definitely come to prominence having a hard line uh, other position, you know, uh, you know, sort of other position. Um, the differences I see are some of those people use a lot of personal anecdotes. I knew a girl who got a vaccine and now she's in a, you know, whatever situation. The, like, right. you know, just the dumbest right. thing I've ever heard. Uh, it's, right. man, it's just as bad as saying I knew a nine-year-old kid who's feeling sad because of long coat. You know what I mean? It's like, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. But but with a guy like Jay Bhattacharya, that's not, I, you know, and my impression of him is that's not his style of argument. It's always like, um, as a health economist who's reviewed multiple empirical studies of the importance of schools and someone Correct. who studied the IFR in children, I conclude that the net benefit is in favor. And um, yep. I think the way you and I reason um, is often by sort of trying to draw upon, that's why we call it a news show, empirical studies, yeah. I think. Yeah, for the most part. And also just kind of taking an epi look at like, yeah. how are people behaving? I think that's a that's an important thing on, on both sides of this thing. And, and why are there even sides, right? This is a this should be a healthy, rigorous scientific debate. We should be doing studies to try to confirm and, and elaborate on the, do these masks work? Do, like what's going on with, you know, how, how many kids? Like, oh, wow, the CDC actually has seroprevalence data on kids and says 75% of kids have already been infected with COVID. So- right. So that that brings us probably to maybe a, a, a another topic of conversation here, which is vaccinating children, the EUA for kids, maybe. Um, Wait, one more thing on this. I want to beat on this last thing, but we'll come to the EUA. I okay. guess the other thing I would say is that um, I think there's a lot of people who are on the spectrum of this kind of emotional abuse on, on that side more than the other side. I mean, I do think there are fringe elements who are you know, uh, I mean, certainly there, there are lunatics who say vaccines don't work. You know, a 60-year-old shouldn't get vaccinated. You know, there are these lunatics on the other side, right? Um, yeah. And by the way, you know, and somebody was like, oh, are you sure? I'm like, look at, just look at the raw numbers, people. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So of course, like adult vaccination for someone who has not yet met the virus is a very good thing. Um, yep. Um, but on, uh, but I do think Twitter, like, let me put it differently. Among the among all the people who are actually trained in biomedicine, I think the net vector of bias is towards the COVIDian camp. Does that make sense? Does that fair? Like yeah, among the I net, think that's right. among among the general population of t Facebook users, I have no idea where the net vector of bias is. And if you actually showed me it was in the like anti-vax direction, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree with you among like the right. general population. But the yeah. net vector of bias among the um, people like this person, or like you know who you know, she is a doctor, I think. Um, yeah, she is pediatrician. Pediatrician. Yeah. Um, she did yeah. complete the training. So I mean, yeah. the, the vi bias there is in that COVIDian direction. Um, yeah. And I think that their their reach and impact in the media is more than the other way, um, and their ability to use institutional power is stronger. So they're the reason that like Stanford University was deporting, you know, or is threatening to deport people who don't get boosted, you know, kids on visas. Yeah. 
their ability to to create a federal mandate and fire federal employees, you know, they have more of the the reins of power, real power in America, not the power to go on Facebook and talk shit, but the real power to use the levers of government and institutions to get people to comply. And so for me, the reason I single out their, I mean, I talk more about their, and also they should be better educated because they've gone to the, you know, done all this stuff, but they're often, you know, quite foolish about these things. And so to me, that's a bigger problem. And I think a lot of them maybe who do see patients like, you know, maybe she, maybe her stories are uh, more dubious, but even people who have less dubious stories, I think they're, they're incorrect for using the stories. I mean, it's an emotional manipulation. If you really want to argue, you need to use data and, you know, I can yeah. tell stories, too, but I almost never tell stories. Um, I find it, one, I find it rude. Um, I, I find it distasteful. And I find, like, I don't want to persuade someone by the wrong thing. I want to persuade them with the content of the argument and not, like, some anecdote of a patient I saw five weeks ago or somebody, uh, who, you know. Appeal to emotion yeah. and, and anecdotal stuff and all of that. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's why we tend to you and I in particular tend to call these folks out. And I hate the, even the term call out, but like, you know, just like people will say, oh, you guys are so like, why why don't you talk about this about kids instead of constantly focusing on myocarditis or whatever else you're talking about? It's like, well, because everybody else is pounding this thing of like, well, we can prevent long COVID and we can do this and we can do that. It's like, well, 75% of these kids have already been infected. Yeah. And, know, and, and, it, and one more thing there too, is that like the anti-vax person is not passing a law that makes it illegal for like me to get a vaccine if I want to do it you know i mean as, as yeah. bad as they are they're persuading people maybe wrongly they're not passing laws that prohibit by law that like you could get like z-dog's not allowed to get a booster by law you know in, <laughs> right. George, in georgia or whatever with the hell state that right okay but but meanwhile the 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 the, the, the zealots on the other side are literally passing the passing like, law yeah, yeah like if you don't get boosted at stanford you get thrown out of your remote astronomy program you know like what the hell <laughs> i mean like a 22 year old guy who has omicron his nose is still runny you better boost up, buddy, or you're going to get you know thrown out of the pro. I mean, so they're abusing the power. I think it's really different. I don't know. Yeah, no, 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 no. I think that's that's the discussion, right? And but you know, again, and you know, there's there's a guy. Um, they run this podcast called uh, Decoding the Gurus, oh, and yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's kind of a Covidian bias a little bit. But uh, I actually met uh, Chris Cavanaugh, one of the guys who does it, on a show that I did uh, recently with um, uh, uh, Peter Lindbergh's The Stoa. We were talking about this culture war stuff, and I think I think Chris is very well intentioned in that. He does, because he, he studies cults and things like that, there is a component of the Covidiot side of this, of the antithesis side that uh, has come, kind of, has these kind of, he calls it the guru, guru gurometer. So these kind of guru metrics that, <laughs> that kind of bring them to prominence, like galaxy brain, like they, they, they feel like they have these, they're connecting all the dots and the conspiracies and so on, and this kind of cultish, kind of thing that they do and an an ingrained anti-establishment uh sort of uh, piece uh constant grievance mongering like oh you know they're treating me bad and the, the media is treating me bad and twitter's treating me bad and you know i found i found sometimes i actually display some of these things i was like i'm scoring a non-zero on this gurometer uh self-aggrandizement narcissism cassandra complex the idea that you have a revolutionary theory conspiracy mongering, grifting. And so there are these components in, and I think they're more common in the antithesis wing. But if you look at the Covidian wing, mm. I think there's some of this too, <laughs> because mm. they kind of blow up the opposition as this terrible existential threat to the, to the world when they actually have all the power. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's really interesting. There's a lot, 
kind of to dive into in these weird things and, and to self-reflect on too. go, oh, you know, are, are my supporters a little bit of a cult? Possibly. Oh, maybe I have to have a word with yeah. myself on that. Yeah. I mean, the support is hard to control. The Rita, the, I mean, what's her name? Risa. The, the Risa. Hoshino, oh, yeah. I mean. Hoshino, yeah. I mean, it also goes to show you that look at how people will like retweet and promote someone they like don't know anything about. And um, yeah, that's, and that's the other thing. I, uh, yeah, it's really tricky. You know, Marty does that every now and again. He'll retweet something because he'll agree with the basic premise of the tweet. And then it turns out to be like a, an anti-vaccine organization or something. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I didn't know what they did. But this statement is correct. Um, and I've, I've fallen into that before, too. So so kind of related to that, then, uh, this looking at kids and the emergency use authorization for vaccines and kids and Moderna is now pursuing, oh, could we be the vaccine? I mean, of all the vaccines, right? <laughs> Moderna wants to be the first for young young kids. It's like, well, let's see the, the most myocardogenic. It's, it's like when you, when you think about the youth, you think about Moderna. Moderna, <laughs> it's good for what, good for what ails First good of all, for what good for what ails in, you. In Europe, we, we, they won't even give it to anyone under 30 in certain European countries. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> my heart aches for Moderna. <laughs> yes. It's like, they're uh, only going to make $20 billion this year, you know. There's such a little, there's such a little, mm, uh, you know, there's <laughs> such a little, I know what they're up to. You know, uh, uh. here's what I think they're doing. You know, they know that Pfizer's got delayed because they got the third dose, right? Yeah. And they smell it up. And then they know that the FDA announced last week they want to get both of their applications side by side to compare. And they know that if you do that, I think, you know, they're very likely, no, I mean, I don't say that. I won't put it differently. I'd say there is some possibility that the FDA advisory committee is like, oh, well, we think it's it's more prudent to do three three micrograms of Pfizer rather than two 25s of Moderna. Sorry. Um, yeah, two 25s of Moderna. Um Right. So they'll think it's more prudent to do um, the Pfizer vaccine. And so then they're not going to get the market share. But if they pressure mm. the FDA to make a decision right now, real quick, and they get all these, you know, 20 percent of parents who would like, you know, they flip a car to get a vaccine for their two year old um, to put pressure on the FDA, they got an opportunity to kind of snatch up some market share. And then the other thing mm. about this market share that I think is interesting is like the market share is only going to be there for like three weeks. Like there's a group of parents who want to do it real quick for their yep. kid. And, and then it's gone. And then they're, and that's 20%. And then they're gone. And then there's a 80% of people who like don't want to do it or want to wait to see. And they're not going to do, rush. And so if Moderna comes in three weeks before Pfizer, they get their market share and then they're out, you know, and let Pfizer yeah. pick up the crumbs. So it's, it's some gaming here. And, and, and actually that brings you to the point, like how, what's the percentage of kids uh, five to 11 that are actually vaccinated? It's quite small. I think it's like 20 four percent or yeah. something yeah and like the most of it was like in the first like exploded like the exactly people, you know rushed and then now it's like dragging their feet and now finally yeah. do you see that like you know i had written all those op-eds in the fall like school vaccine requirements are you know problematic you want to bring these kids into school that's the priority not pushing them out etc um and uh now la the superintendent of schools is saying the same thing that uh that person in the California assembly has decided not to push that bill. So Oh, like, Stephen Stephen Pan who was actually on my show. Oh, yeah. Richard Pan. Richard, Richard Pan. Yeah, 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 Richard Pan. It's funny, it's funny. So Richard Pan was on my show. We were talking about 
childhood vaccines and the importance of them. And you know, he's a politician. He's he's a, a Democratic legislator legislator in California. And so, you know, when when I interviewed him, he, he was very uh, very nice guy, by the way. Uh, in person, came over to my house when I was still shooting at my home and had all his bodyguards and <laughs> security and everything at my home, which is part of the reason I ended up g- getting a studio because I was like, this is uncomfortable. Uh, at some point, I'm going to be murdered. Um, but but um, you know, we we had the conversation, and I thought I thought it was. Really reasonable, but it was very, it was very kind of militant pro-vax um, without a lot of nuance. And that made me a little uncomfortable. And I think during pandemic, I've seen some, you know, folks like that, 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 that are so, that are pro, that are anti-anti-vaxxers, right? right? That, that it's just, I just, it, it makes me cringe a little because that's not how you're going to influence people. It's how you're going to build your own tribe. It's the same. It's a Risa Hoshino thing. Like who's going to be influenced by the shit you're saying? Like who's really going to change their mind because you did some shit on, on Twitter? You know, like, and you know, I, I, I want to go further. Like, you know, if, if something's like, if, if you want to be a medical influencer, you know, pick something that is like a settled science, like, um, right, I don't know, exercise right. and go influence about exercise, try to get people up and about, you know? Yeah. But, and people do that. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be an influencer, don't pick a pending emergency use authorization, uh, waiting for <laughs> verbac review. What the fuck are you picking that for? You're you're fucking influence. You don't understand the issues at, at stake. You're not yeah. you're not qualified to influence. They don't just need some you know uh, good looking person to sell this. They need somebody whose brain is working to analyze this. They don't. What are you talking about? We don't need yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it gets to that whole thing about influencers on. Instagram and Twitter, physician influencers, you know, some of them you look at and they're just saying like the right things in general, like you should eat less, exercise more, watch your this, do that, meditate. I'm like, great. I mean, I could tell you that, but I'm glad that a good looking doctor with a stethoscope wearing scrubs is doing it because maybe there are some muggles, non-medical people who will listen. That's great. But you're right about this kind of thing. It's like, ooh. This is like being a, an influencer for how to run a nuclear power plant. Like, oh, how should you run your nuclear power plant? I'm here to show you five easy steps. It's so easy. Just remember, these rods are dampening the nuclear chain reaction. You know, and you're like, Jesus oh, Christ. Wow. It's like, you know, you, they, they need someone to be, te- to be influencing this who knows what they're talking about person, you know, like that- in, influencing live vaccine safety decisions. That's not for influencers. Stick to, stick to, you know, I don't know how to brush your teeth or, you know, how to keep your skin looking youthful. I don't know the things that are frivolous that no one really cares about influencing this. How, Man, look, that's the, the, the influencing the war in Ukraine. Here's how yeah, I would yeah, move, yeah, yeah. How, how I would move the anti air <laughs> missiles, you know, anti-aircraft <laughs> missiles. I was like, what? <laughs> a, it, oh my God. You know, you know, what's, what, what is interesting is the, uh, when the Russians took over the Chernobyl plant, they were so clueless as to what the, the frontline soldiers as to what was going on there. They started digging trenches in the red forest, this most highly polluted place on earth in terms of radioactivity and had to leave because of radiation sickness, uh, according to reports from that. And it's kind of like, that's the same thing. It's like you go in not knowing what the fuck you're doing. It, 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 it is rocket science. Like that is, ro- it's Did nuclear engineering. The, um, HBO show Chernobyl? Oh, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. And that scene with like, what was it? Stellan Skarsgård where he was like, um, he was like, we need uh we need a few of you to go swim through the water. Oh, and then he yeah. was like, and then like, no one, I need a volunteer. And then he says, and then like nobody volunteered. And then he's like, our people have suffered for thousands of years, but we yeah. have always rose to the task. Who volunteers now? And like all and the hands. All yeah. step forward. <laughs> like, Man. Wow, that's hardcore. It, it, my, my AP European history teacher, who st- I still, 
I still kind of cite as a big influence because he was such a character. He used to call it the Slavic mentality. It's like this kind of like, hey, we have suffered, we'll suffer again, we'll do what it what it takes to get get stuff done. And yeah, watching Chernobyl, it was like that. Those coal miners who dug tunnels under the plant to install that stuff. You're just like, oh my gosh. So, you know, and then you have an organization like the AMA that's like trying to be super woke and is writing these crazy things about this stuff. And you're like, well, guys, like, man, this is, this feels very incorrect as to the battles we should be fighting right now. <laughs> oh, you know, yes, uh, they had their, yeah. right. Oh, they've lost their focus on so many things. What else did the, a a things. the AMA did recently? They did something else that was crazy. I can't remember. Dude, I mean, just take your pick. There's a lot. Uh, you know, it used to be, and AMA is, is responsible for a lot of terrible things, like, you know, keeping uh, African-Americans out of medicine, mm -hmm. um, keeping supply of physicians very low so salaries could be up, and now we're in a situation where we're short. Um, you know, it's and, bad. And, but, you know, the, like, the entire rates, differential pay rates between disciplines are all supported by all this kind of AMA lobbying and professional lobbying. The oh, reason yeah. why primary care is, like, stagnating and nobody wants to do it is because... <laughs> you know, they siphon away the money. Uh, a thousand percent, yes. Uh, and AMA actually funds itself through uh, CPT codes. <laughs> they, they, they patented oh, that. Oh, they patented uh, the CPT? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So the very them. aspect of billing that we hate the most, they, they created, um, which actually gets me to the uh, Stanford nurses strike. Stanford so, nurses, yeah. What's going yeah, on there? So, I don't know anything about this. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in as much as I know. And I'll say this, people ask me to talk about labor disputes between nurses and, and uh, management for years. All around the country, there's a strike. I get a million emails from nurses saying, can you support us? Can you say something? Can you do this? And generally I say, look at, I, I, you know I support nurses. You know I support frontline healthcare professionals because I'm you know, I'm in that tribe, but I've also been in management, right? Running a clinic. And so I know the tension and I know that you have to get all sides of a story if you're gonna talk about it properly as much as you can. And so with labor disputes, I tend to stay out. I go, yeah, I can't really, I'm not gonna go there and pick it with you. I'm not gonna stand at the front because I have no idea what the real issues and details are. Mm -hmm, right. um, and so I'm gonna violate that premise for this thing, just to just to talk about it, because I think it's important in the context of the pandemic. And so the Stanford nurses have a union called Krona, and it started in like 1966 or so, when it was actually illegal for nonprofit hospitals to have staff unionized. Mm. And so it was this committee for recognition of nursing appreciation or, or nursing achievement. And so they started as a non-union actually, because they had to, and then it evolved into a union. And in their entire uh, history, they've only striked previously twice. And one was many years ago in the 70s. And the second strike was when I was a resident, a second year resident or wow. finishing first year. Uh, yeah, it was 2000. And, um, and I remember that strike very vividly because you have, it was really interesting, Vinay, because here, here, you know, we didn't know anything. We're just residents. We, we, all we know is there, there's a vaguely antagonistic relationship you can have with nurses if you're not careful when you're a resident, right? Because they're calling you in the middle of the night and so on. And but at the same time, you know they're teaching you the game. And if you don't learn from them, you're you're a fool because they're there at an academic institution seeing complex patients for years, working with everybody, and they have to be a little bit standoffish with you because they're, they've seen such a variety of different residents and they can behave like jack jackasses. So there's a certain ethos. So when they walked off for their strike, 
which had no uh, time limit on it. It was just like, we're gonna go on strike and we have these demands. Um, they brought in a bunch of travelers to replace them. And it was a instant shit show because these are sick, complicated patients and complex systems at a major academic tertiary center. Um, and at the same time, there was a massive culture change overnight. Suddenly you have community nurses treating residents and interns like community doctors. Mm. So imagine what that's like. Suddenly they're like getting us coffee and bringing <laughs> us, you know, bringing us the chart and saying, yes, sir. And this kind of thing. A lot of them were from the South. There was this politeness. And I tell you, a lot of us were like, oh, this is what it's like in the community? Like, wow, like this is dangerous in an academic institution because we're idiots, but it's kind of nice. Like you, you were like, wow, like everybody's so nice and this kind of collegial, you know, it lasted a couple weeks until, until those nurses picked up the fact that we didn't know what we were doing. But um, it was interesting. So there was that culture shift, but the problem with that strike is it lasted something like 60 days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was, it was, an ordeal. It was traumatic for every single person involved. And so there's a lot of like residual trauma from that strike. And I don't mm -hmm. know what the ultimate decision was. So now here we are post COVID and the nurses are saying, listen, during COVID, we've had to work overtime because we're understaffed. This place runs on our overtime. We're exhausted. A lot of us have had COVID and had to take sick leave and now our vacation is affected. So we don't have the time off. We don't get resources for mental health uh, purposes. Like many of us are, are traumatize and have these issues and we have to pay out of pocket for a therapist, that kind of thing. Um, the staffing is still terrible because it's not based on acuity, even though there are staffing laws in California, which nurses would kill for in other parts of the country, the, the, there's still acuity where it needs to be one-to-one, -one, but the law says you know two-to-one in ICU because the patients are so much sicker. Um, and, and so on, you know, inflation costs, retain, retaining high quality nurses that uh, working on ECMO and things like that, that are very hard to do. Um, so th those are their kind of their premise. And management said, okay, here's the thing. If you uh, walk <clears throat> off now yeah. by May 1st, yeah. if you're still off the job, we're canceling all your benefits. You're gonna have to pay for COBRA if you want healthcare. You're getting fired. Um, you're ba well, you're basically not getting paid for things you're not doing and you're not getting benefits anymore. That was the big one. And so you could have, you could be a nurse with cancer, a pregnant nurse, now suddenly has to pay COBRA, Crazy. which is thousands of bucks a month. And so the nurses are really upset about that. And, I, and listen, I've talked to the heads of their union and I've talked to uh, people that, I, that are friends of mine in the leadership, at, the clinical leadership at Stanford. And so I've heard basically two sides of this. I haven't dived in very deeply, but on the Stanford side, their concern is, well, they have an open-ended strike. Many strikes now are three days, five days. They say this is how, so they can plan. Management can say, okay, we have, we're gonna bring in travelers for these days. It's gonna cost us a ton of money. That's why we don't wanna strike. We're gonna negotiate. But for this one, it's open-ended. So they said, well, we're gonna stop covering your benefits May 1st because we don't know when you're coming back. Um, it's a disaster. So my point is, what a fucking mess. Like, why, why did we ever get to this point how is it that it's so adversarial? Why is medicine treated partially like a business, partially like a calling, partially like a vocation? And th these nurses, they know, I mean, management always knows, they know this with doctors, right? We'll do the right thing for our patients as much as we can to the point where we'll suffer. And they, they often unconsciously or consciously take advantage of that. But then at the same time, I do feel like, wow, this is an open-ended strike is such a tough thing, for, how does management even plan for that? And I understand why they're doing it because they wanna really put pressure on because otherwise they feel they aren't heard. And I, I ju it's just a mess. Wow. 
so fascinating. And you really did a nice job of unpacking all these kind of different vectors of consideration. I guess, you know, it seems like that COVID and all the sort of job fluctuations around it are maybe in part people are realizing ways they've been screwed and maybe in part people are realizing um, how uh, what they really value in life, you know, from this um, period. And there's this huge flux. And uh, I guess, you know, we have to admit that nurses work very hard. And, um, and uh, I feel like, you know, I guess I, I think that, you know, the hospitals probably should treat them right. Um, and the fact that they're willing to spend so much money on traveling nurses really does raise the question of if you've got all that money for nursing care, why have you been underpaying nurses all this time, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And similarly- It really is- Yeah, go it, ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say, they also, hey, listen, it's not so great to be a doctor at some of these places too. Like exactly. Yeah, it's not so exactly. great. Exactly. So, so I think my point is frontline healthcare workers are really devalued across the board. The business of medicine does not treat them well as a rule. Um, Stanford made a quite a bit of profit last year, uh, to my understanding. And so, you know, treating nurses well is a good idea. They are highly skilled. And that's the other thing is they, they want a little more respect and appreciation for their training. You know, we often treat nurses like they're data entry clerks just typing into an EHR, but these are very complex roles they're filling, particularly in these settings. Like, I mean, even med surge can be incredibly complex. And, um, and so this idea that you want a sustainable career path for young nurses and all they see is pain, you know, and, and I have to say this, and this is a little, you know, really disturbing, but even the, just this morning, I heard news that uh, a nurse uh, walked in, uh, walked into ER in uh, Santa Clara Valley, Kaiser, and uh, uh, had a gun actually, and died by suicide oh, in man. one of the, whether it was a break room or a supply closet. And think about that. Think about what pushed them to that, but then think about their colleagues who have to be in the room when that happens and how incredibly traumatic it is at the end of a pandemic when everybody's already sacrificing and all of this. And and of course, nurses are, <laughs> are upset and are gonna strike and so on. And I think if anything, you know, we really ought to be bending over backwards to try to see what we can accommodate that's reasonable because and sustainable because this is this is not sustainable. Wow. And um, Stanford, meanwhile, last I checked, they got a lot. They got a lot of money, don't they? Yeah, they got a butt ton of money. They just yeah. built a brand new hospital. Which, by the way, did you know clinicians were not allowed to walk in the front doors because they didn't want the patients to get upset. So clinicians had to go through the back through this Shut maze. No yeah, way. I'm not even shitting you. Yeah, it was. I, I talked to my colleagues at Stanford. They're like, yeah, this. It's just you know. And the thing is, there's an interesting dynamic too between there's so much politics in any major institution, right? Like I have a lot of love for Stanford. I've trained there, my mentors are there, but I also have a lot of just simmering resentment. <laughs> and, and and that's just how it is. That's how it is in these big political organizations and they're big money makers and there's clinical leadership that's great. And then there's non-clinical leadership. And then it's just, it's very tough. So I just wanna say publicly that I support our nurses. I cannot take sides in a labor dispute, but that hopefully that description of what's going on was as accurate as I can get it. And uh, people can make their own decisions and try to advocate ha as they can. Really well put. What can I add? Nothing you other, may. Than, other than maybe, maybe, you know, sometimes I wonder that like these universities, they're doing such a bad job um, that uh, it wouldn't be so hard to really undercut them. And here's some ways I would think about doing it. Um, if, if you're in a soft money department, which means that, you know, you have to raise your own salary from like grants um, and, and you have a, a field of study that doesn't require lab equipment, like your computational or epidemiologist or something like that. Um, you know, 
I'm surprised there's not like a nonprofit, like that they just don't get destroyed by nonprofits. Cause like, yeah, you can be an assistant professor at, you know, Stanford, an epidemiologist, like 100% soft money, right? Um, and, or you could work for a nonprofit and, and get all your grants through the nonprofit and um, maybe have like less bureaucratic stuff to deal with. Like you don't have to sit on all these committees and maybe more freedom, your own boss, maybe more control over the work environment. Uh, maybe you can even, you don't have to pay as much in overhead and things like that. And I, I feel like the universities, they, you know, they, at some point, all the employees are going to get wise and, you know, they're going to say like, we really don't need you. Um, obviously in medicine, you could always, you know, I mean, you, you don't have to work at a university hospital. And I think that these universities are, they're, they, they're just think that they can live off their, their, their name, their reputation forever. But, uh, I don't know. It might blow up in their face someday. I'm starting to think that may be the case. And remember, they operate too on the effectively slave labor of interns mm -hmm. and residents mm -hmm. and on the clinical side, generating a ton of revenue. Uh, it, it it really is a system that 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 is self-terminating. Like in the setup it's now, it, it can't continue the way it is. And I think, you know, I, I remember in the old days when Stanford and UCSF actually merged because they couldn't financially compete, uh, you know, in the sort of, this was like 19, late 90s. And uh, they had to unmerge because it was such a disaster. Is that true? Did that really happened. Yeah, <clears throat> that really happened. In fact, it was the UCSF Stanford merger, and they were for a while they were operating as UCSF Stanford, and that was what it was. And actually, when I matched at Stanford, they had just unwound that, and we were going to be Stanford again. Um, so it was really fascinating. And again, the business of academic medicine is such a fascinating thing. It's interesting about the soft money. You know, you're generating your own grant money, your own salary. Why not go work for a nonprofit? You know, we're, we're like you said, all that, all that politics, it's different politics, but it's probably less onerous. Yeah. And, um, and, and, you know, each group could create their own nonprofit. You know, they don't even have to, you know, pair, you know, oh, I don't yeah. know. There's lots of different models. Yeah. You know, but maybe that, that maybe they're more agile. Maybe there's better research done that way. And what about you? What you what you what you talking about, Willis? What do you mean? What what do you mean? What about me? I don't know. I mean, to some degree, you're somebody who has beat the system to some degree. I think I look at you with a lot of admiration <laughs> because I mean, you took a huge gamble. You went in and create your own enterprise, and uh, you know you've done really well. I guess because uh, contrary to what I read on the internet, you still got a lot of talent. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but I mean, I don't know. It must have been hard and, um, you know, but like, and you're doing it in a totally new space. Maybe other people will have some confidence and do it in like, you know, these other spaces too. I see, I, okay, me out of the equation, although what it was with me was I said, okay, this is what I'm actually good at. This is what I like doing. I'm gonna try to do it using medicine and and try to accomplish these things in the world that I wanna see happen. And it was risky and it was scary and it was terrifying, but I had a lot of help from a lot of people and a lot of support and it never happens by yourself, but you have to make yourself open to this return on luck, right? You have to be open to taking those scary risks and so on. And you also have to be passionate about what you do and you have to have some degree of talent in terms of what you wanna do, right? But you don't have to be the world's best at anything. I see people like yourself, like the minute I met you, I was like, dude, this guy, like this guy 
has it on these following levels. He's able to communicate succinctly. He's extremely smart at what he does and other things that he doesn't do. And he's a, a, a tremendous um, energy and communicate and communicator. So if you are trapped in academics for the rest of your life, that, that may work fine. You'll be very successful. But the thing is, what if you suddenly said, oh yeah, maybe there's this new thing or maybe there's that. And you threw all your energy into that. It would be risky. It'd be scary. You'd worry about your family. I did all that. But then- the, 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 the upside is you can transform things and live an authentic you that, that you can't do when you're working for someone else. Yeah. Now, a lot of doctors are so risk averse and yeah. they went into medicine because they don't want that, yeah. right? Um, so I don't know, it's almost like you need mentors to help who are the mentors in that space? You know, uh, like I try to I try to mentor people that are going in that direction, but um, we need like a, a network of people that says, you know what, you don't want to do that. Here's here's a way you can use your your skills and talents and your training. People feel too, oh, I'm wasting my training if I do this. No, you're not. You're taking it. And you're doing something with it that nobody's doing. Like go go do it. Or you could you know be a be an Instagram influencer talking about <laughs> you know masking. Two-year-olds. Oh, yes. So and, uh, it's a spectrum. Yes. Which which brings us to the next topic. Speaking of influencers, I was reading on Twitter that, you know, that 20% of people who really want that vaccine for kids under six, you know, they're very motivated. And, um, you know, they're, they're really motivated. <laughs> I mean, they really, they yeah. really, really want it. Um, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that they would want it, you know, without any data. I mean, I think they'd be happy to have it without, like literally they wouldn't even need to look at the data. Um, I think you're right, yeah. yeah. Recently I saw somebody had a thread that went viral and this is about the Moderna. The Moderna, they went ahead and they submitted that EUA. Um, they're trying to get that market share. Wait, did we already talk about this? No, no, no. We, ta we, we talked about Moderna's uh, 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 strategy on the EUA, but um, didn't really dive in too much in Here, the, on the kids piece, yeah. Here's what the thread says. Yeah. Mod Moderna says that the vaccine is 51% effective against symptomatic disease for six months to two and 37% for two to six. That's right. But the FDA mm -hmm. previously said at the beginning of this whole pandemic that if you're below 50%, Forget you, don't, you don't get approval. And also yeah. the lower bound of the 95% confidence interval has to be above 30 because they don't Ooh. just want a point estimate over 50. They want to prove that at least is better than 30%. Because once you get below yeah. 30, you really start to wonder what you're really in this business for. And what are what, you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? And even there's also like this possibility that the immediate risk compensation will like undo sort of whatever, you know, transient gain you think you've gotten because people will view it as more protective than it is. And actually some people like John Yonides published some papers on that. But um, so that's oh, enough. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 okay, okay, tell me more about that. So what do you mean by that? I mean, I think like the general idea is that um, a vaccine that's only very weakly effective against uh, symptomatic disease the moment somebody gets vaccinated, they dramatically change their behavior. Uh-huh, yeah. And um, so you actually, like in the immediate aftermath, you get way more cases than you otherwise would because the behavioral uh -huh. change is much bigger than the vaccine's protectiveness against acquiring the disease. But that is really interesting, yeah. Not, but to me, that's somewhat of a moot point because- I It think doesn't matter, All, all yeah, these exactly. kids will eventually get it anyway. Exactly and 75% right. have already gotten it already, you know? Just but, rip the Band-Aid off, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that was part of the FDA's original motivation for why they had set those bars. But I do I think- see those bars are, you know, important. They're, it's important that there is a bar. If there's no yeah. bar at all, then what are we doing? 
what are we doing? You know, I think that's, that's that's key. Actually, that that idea that oh, why not just get a vaccine that's twenty five percent effective is better or than five percent well, or one percent. Yeah. You know. Well, because people take it, they don't understand that risk, and they go out and change their behavior. Now, again, in the long term, I don't think it matters because we're all going to get this. But Correct. if you're if you're elderly, like if if it was twenty five percent effective against severe disease in Correct. the elderly, boy, that'd be a conversation, right? <laughs> like, why bother? Uh, I mean, you can do it, but you better not change your behavior. You Correct. better wear an N95 mask and, you know, stay away from people and so on. Correct. Um, yeah, I really think, I, how many people do you know right now that are that have tested positive for Omicron? I mean, like, I know so many people. It's like, We're in the middle of a massive surge that's underreported, and it doesn't matter because the hospitals aren't filling up and Correct. people aren't dropping. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, just yeah, absolutely, just as you say. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, I went to my kids' uh, open house uh, elementary school uh, the other day, and um, they were requiring masks actually uh, to enter the school. And yeah. you know what's interesting? Look, you you know me. You, you, we we share a, a a feeling on this that mm -hmm. masking kids is not necessarily an evidence based strategy. Mm -hmm. When I walked in this room with a bunch of children and a bunch of adults, and they were all wearing masks, there was a psychological feeling I had that I was like. I was like, ah, you know, I feel I feel a little better. These kids look gross to me. I don't like them. They're 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 yucky. They're snotty, and <laughs> them wearing masks makes me feel better. I knew there was not great data on this, but psychologically, it was it felt. You're protective. probably putting your finger on the fact, like why it's such a hard thing to quit. That's right. That's what it is. Because imagine you're you know you're a teacher and you're seeing this room full of little filthy little vermin. It, it really does feel better when they're behind a mat. Now, what's funny is this family came in, a uh, family of like five, and um, they just walked in with no masks and were just talking loudly and getting up in everyone's face. And I I think they just didn't you know. I just don't think they cared. And it was weird. There's like, again, a psychological, like, ooh, these people are impure. Like that immediate flash. And you know me, I'm not in that COVIDian camp, right? right? But even you felt a little? Even I felt it. I was yeah. like, oh, okay, okay. I can I can be a little more, I understand the psychology, um, but we're, we're trying to transcend our baser impulses here to try to get at what's actually good policy, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Let me walk you through the rest of this thread and tell you some of the other things I thought were interesting. Okay, so this thread, yeah. you know, this per okay, so this person says these are the results of the study, which by the way, failed the initial bar. Um, sounds mediocre, but here's why it's much better than that, the person goes on. Okay, so it sounds mediocre because it is mediocre. So I'm, I'm curious to know why you think it's better. All right, quote. Um, we know these vaccines provide very good short-term protection against infection, but that's the honeymoon phase. Okay, well, yeah, it's, 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 it's constantly going to lose that over time, sure. But the way these vaccines were designed and how they work best is not really about infection. Uh, I think that's actually technically incorrect. They were designed with a primary endpoint for symptomatic infection. That was what they were designed for. It turns out with more time that they don't quite do that well or durably well. We hope that they have a severe disease protection that's more durable, and it appears that that is more durable. And so that's what it's doing better. But I would say it's incorrect to say that it wasn't designed to do that. That was the primary point of the original study. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. What these yeah. vaccines have been shown to do over and over is protect against severe disease and hospitalization, long-term consequences. Um, they've been shown to protect against severe disease and hospitalization. Uh, I'm not sure about anything longer term than that. So I think if there's an implication that they protect against long COVID, I've yet to see such data. Okay. Next, right. next sentence. A pediatric trial can't be large enough to detect that. That's incorrect. It could be large enough to detect yeah, that. Just it would just power be, it, right? Yeah, 200,000 people per arm. And the mere fact it has to be so large tells you that the effect size is very, very low. Okay, and then the next sentence. But the immune bridge strategy used by both Moderna and Pfizer has worked. Okay, first of all, incorrect. I mean, you can't say that. 
So, but first, what is immune bridge strategy? Yeah, what is immune bridge strategy? When the FDA was doing this vaccine, the way they des- the way they said the company should get the market share is initially in adults proved to me a reduction in symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. The company did that in the original study with 40,000 people per arm. And they also sort of had very suggestive results that would also lower severe disease at that time. Mm-hmm. And then they said, having proven that, when you go to younger ages, we're no longer going to ask you to prove again and again you lower ah. symptomatic disease. We're going to ask you just to show me you get the antibody titers very high. That's called immune bridging. We're going to bridge you to lower age groups merely with antibody proof. But, but Z, there's a big difference between doing that one month after the original study and doing that two and a half years after the original study. Because two and a half years later, the antibody, we got a different virus we're dealing with. We're dealing with Omicron. We're not dealing with the original strain. So the Mm -hmm. immune bridge will logically not work as well with time. And then this person is saying immune bridge strategy has worked. And I think what he means is that it's worked like it's been good to do it that way. But the truth is... (laughs) The truth is, I mean, it's worked. It's led to a lot of authorizations, but has it worked? I don't think we have robust data that it has worked. Like, you know, where what is the robust data that a five-year-old has a reduction in severe disease and hospitalization from being vaccinated than if they weren't a five-year-old? And, you know, then he says... Um, We've seen a lot of observational studies that suggest this severe consequences. The problem with that is every single study I've seen of even particularly children, it is confounded by the 20% of parents who have rushed to get vaccinated. They're very, very different than average parents. They're the most risk averse people. So naturally, the kids who've been vaccinated are going to have, you know, probably higher socioeconomic status and probably lower exposure risk and probably like better home surroundings, like more sleep and better nutrition and all these things. So is it, you know, what's the proof that there is a reduction in severe disease at those ages? I I, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that there is. Um, you know, I'm not saying there isn't. It could be. But I just don't think we've proven that. And you would have to prove that to actually say the immune bridge strategy worked. That would be my argument. Yeah. I mean, what, what you're basically pointing out is we just simply don't have the data to make the assertions that Correct. people are making Correct. in the public sphere. It makes parents feel better to have something they can give to their kids because some parents have really, they are so anxious about this stuff. Like it's, they're, they're terrified. And, and I think it actually gets, it gets a little bit to this uh, sort of masking in public uh, transport, like Bay Area, BART, and these kind of things are like thinking of putting the mask mandates back on because, and they'll say, well, we really want to protect kids under five and immunocompromised people. And it's like, but, 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 but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, you know, it's because they don't have a vaccine, but like, are you really, like how much are you really protecting the five-year-old when Omicron, you know, the, percentage of a chance they're still going to get infected. And we, like you said, we don't know about severe disease. Their severe disease rate is already low. And right. like you said, the, the people who are likely to get vaccinated already have these other advantages. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that just brings me to another Risa Hoshino tweet, just because I saw this and I have to say it. It again goes to like, there's signaling and emotion and then there's actual science. She says, I just spent 12 hours straight in an N95 mask. Was it uncomfortable? Yes. Was it annoying? Hell yes. But guess what? Pros far, far, far outweigh cons. That's why everyone should mask right now. What I was cannot the date exp- of the tweet? Uh, 321.22. 22? 22? <laughs> 
<laughs> 22. Yeah, there's more. That's why everyone should mask right now. 321.22. If it was 321.20, then. Yeah, you could yeah. have made the then argument. Then she's, yeah. she's a prescient commenter. But 321.22 right. is a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I cannot express to you how important masking is right now. Yeah. And then she says, I just really care with a sad face emoji. Now, everything in this tweet is just brilliant. It's brilliant. just brilliant. And again, it points to everything that we're arguing that you shouldn't do. So I just thought I'd drop that right there. God, that emotional <laughs> bomb. Um, uh, you know, I just really care, Fanai. I really care. Yeah, That's what I think separates the, me. The thing that these people don't understand is that, um, you know, we also really care. I also care. And yeah. uh, the only difference is I care and then I use my brain. And I don't just care and say what other people tell me to say. Uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a big difference, just, <laughs> you know, and, um, yeah, I also see people say that like, oh, the four-year-old will be much less likely to get long COVID if they get Moderna before. On what basis do you say that? What, what, what it, where is the basis for such claims? You know, yeah. you can get away with the most rampant misinformation if it supports whatever cause you want. Um, you know, you can say whatever nonsense that's unproven and untrue. Um, but if people don't like the cause, then they're going to label it misinformation and throw you off Twitter. And I think that's degree. That's part of what irritates Elon and probably why he bought the platform. And by the way, Z, yep. I wish I had that kind of power that like if I see something I don't like, I was like, I'm just going to buy this and change it, <gasps> you know? Go to a Man. restaurant and they give you a hard time and say, you know what? I just bought your restaurant, by the way. Yeah. Find a new job. I own <laughs> I now own Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, you own KFC, but you're gonna I, rename it Kentucky Fried. It's because didn't they change it to oh, KFC? Oh yeah, officially. right. KFC. I'm gonna make it back Kentucky Fried Chicken Kentucky because Fried. that's what that's what I like. And I'm gonna merge it with Chick-fil-A so all the best aspects of both mm. chicken strategies are gonna be there. Did you hear about these uh, the this, so this avian flu thing? Um, it's, it's like ripping through wild birds and, uh, domesticated, uh, oh. livestock birds. And it's just, it's, it's causing havoc. And so these Iowa, this Iowa chicken farm, like killed like 5 million birds Jesus. to kind of cull it. And they did it in like the most inhumane way. Like they like basically baked them alive or something terrible. And then they fired the workers who were responsible for having to, they had to lay off all the workers who had to like drag these dead carcasses out for weeks at a time. And. I don't know, dude. I, I feel like all of this is connected to we're just humans behave like jackasses all across the globe, and it's all connected. And everything is ultimately uh, leading to these little failure points that we're like, oh, is this an isolated thing? It's like, no, it's all connected. Um, so yeah, we you know we actually they, care they, about like, shit. They're like know? following the Shanghai playbook on how to deal with outbreaks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's gonna be that's gonna be the Beijing approach now. They're like, well, you know, Shanghai was one thing, but Beijing, I don't know if we can do zero COVID there. Maybe we'll just do zero COVID light now, because because like, dude, Shanghai's been under lockdown for how long now? Month? Two months? Who knows? It's like They're, yeah, maybe two months. Oh my god! Zero dude. COVID is dumb, and um, I don't know a philosophy that after a healthy person has three vaccines, they should wear an N95. I really struggle with what what is what is the end game forever? Yeah, yeah. And then by the way, and then if that's the answer, then then maybe they'll have an mRNA vaccine that'll give you a mask grow on your face. No, I don't know what it, you need a more permanent, <laughs> durable solution. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, they, they don't have one. They're like, well, we're just working towards endemicity, which brings us to Fauci. Oh no, gosh, Fauci. Oh, Fauci. Why is he Fa- still playing a role in this? That's what I uh, <laughs> That's a great question. Send me a memo to retire at 75. You know, please just have me send oh, me Oh man, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking I'm gonna be 50 next year. I'm gonna retire then. And I'm not even sure what I do, but I'm just, I'm calling the code. I'm you like, feel I'm just it already. Obs- no, yeah, it's like I, I I'm just not competent in anything anymore, you know. You, you don't you, you don't want to be 80 years old telling people masks don't work and then masks are the greatest thing since sliced <laughs> bread in in 6 weeks period of time. Um I mean that's a life goal hashtag #life goal of mine, but uh yeah, the Fouch. I I I, mean, I have always agreed with you on this that we need rotating cast of characters yes, here. Rotating you know? cast of characters. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. you know, I mean, we've you had don't watch for the way original cast of Rent. You want no. a new <laughs> cast of Rent, you know? <laughs> exactly. I don't want to see the, uh, you know, Lin-Manuel doing, well, actually Lin-Manuel doing uh, Hamilton would still be awesome because uh, that hadn't been that long, but, you know. <laughs> Have you seen Encanto, Encanto. yet? Encanto. The Pixar film. Uh, I have it's, not, no. It's not great, but the songs, the songs. Are the songs good? The, Lin the songs, songs are really earworms. Uh, they're really catchy. And yeah, you're the expert uh, on that. Well, I don't know about that, but well, I mean, uh, at least you're a musician, ish. But hey, by the way, should I start making parody videos again, or just you know, call the code on that? I meant to talk to you. I recently had dinner with the guy here, a geriatrician, and he also kind of is in your line of work. Um, oh, you know this guy, Alex Smith. He's a. Uh, I don't. Uh, he he writes um these kinds of things and um. You know, and, uh, and, uh, well, you guys could commiserate on the craft because, you know, part of it is like you have to get the syncopation of your, your new words, your new lyrics to fit the old lyrics. And that's not so always, you know, that's tricky. I think people underestimate that. Well, and the worst part of that whole thing is say you become known for doing parody videos, which I I had been, you'll get a million people saying, hey, I've got a parody for you. And they send you the lyrics and it's the most idiotic, like, do you even have a sense of rhythm? Like that that word that you put there has nothing to do with this song like it will not fit in the in the pace or the or the rhythm of the song it doesn't make sense and you have no ability to hear that so i can i can sing it for you and you'll see but so so yeah there's that <laughs> so it gets frustrating weird al just stopped like he stopped even listening to people who give him suggestions he's like enough enough but see the thing is every now and again someone will say something and i'm like that's brilliant i'm doing that like yeah. um you know so, someone I mean, pressured I, me I think yeah. the videos are great and they have a timeless quality. You know, some videos like we do, nobody's going to watch it like a year from now, right? Because it's already yeah. very dated. All, you know, to be honest, is that true of the VPCD show? Probably yes. I mean, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very topical show. So it is immediately right. dated. It's a news show. It's a news show. You know, you don't want to yeah. go watch Tom Brokaw from, you know, 96, uh, you know, random. You wouldn't do it randomly. Uh, but you would uh, go watch Frasier, by the way. I'm working my way through the catalog. Um, oh, yeah. You were saying it's, it's good. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think I fully appreciate how brilliant it was. It was so well-written, won so many yeah. awards, well-deserved. But back yeah. to this parody thing. You know, I recently saw a parody video or something online, and it was, like, about, you know, authors submitting articles to, like, a journal. And uh, some things were kind of funny, but some things were, like, just wrong and, like, off. And I was just like, you know, it's hard to make a parody video if you're, like, just not in that culture. Um, yeah. You know, you get yeah. some things wrong. Um you know, because this video was like about how the author wanted to buy a copy of their own article back. And I was like, I can tell you that once the author gets the article accepted, they probably don't give a shit about it. They don't it. give a shit. Yeah, they don't really want the copy and they don't really need to pay the money for it. They can just use, yeah. 
actually, that's see, that's a crucial thing. That's why med students make the best med student yes, parodies because they're living. At, they're living it. You know, when I was a full-time hospitalist, I made really good clinical parodies. Now it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I would make these weird meta parodies about meta shit and I'm not sure it would fly. Plus some asshole can go on TikTok and do a, a one minute dance video and get many more, much more engagement than I would get spending $10,000 and doing all this stuff on a, on a music video. Um, so it's just, it gets a little, I don't know. I feel like I might've, I've done something like 70 music videos. like. If 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 on but the music the video, maybe the reason playlist. to do it is if it brings you joy. Does it bring That's you right. joy? Totally, totally, and it does. It does. But 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 to a degree, it has to be something. I just think, oh man, like when we did uh, my Corona at yeah. the beginning of, uh, I was like, this is so idiotic. I just have to do this. Like it just <laughs> brings me joy. Like these lyrics are so dumb, and you know, <laughs> it, it's saying the kind of thing I really want to say, which is why let's 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 take a breath here and prepare, but let's not panic and run around like chickens with our heads well, off. Maybe you should do one just to see if the spark is still there. Just to try it out? Yeah. yeah. I got to think about what it is. I've, I've still, I really want to do a thing on antibiotic uh, overuse, like, uh, but with Shaggy's, it wasn't me. Um, you know, like, shorty came in and she coughed and then wheezed and wanted, uh -huh. you know, yeah, yeah, and, and it's like, I gave a Z, you know, but, you know, but we think it's, you know, a virus. I gave a Z, you know, but my press gainy score is not highest. I gave a Z, you know, and the whole thing. But um, again, it's going to be like 10 people are going to watch that, but yeah. I would enjoy making it. I mean, I think what would be great and and like you needed another suggestion in your life. <laughs> oh, bring it, bring it. I don't have the suggestion of the song, but I think the content would be if just to sit down and write like sort of the major events of COVID-19 pandemic and put it into a... Uh, a oh, song. into a the history. Oh, yeah, the history. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Encanto had that great song. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno, and you could just say we don't talk about COVID. Ah. But um, yeah, right. It was our wedding day. <laughs> it was a, <laughs> and there wasn't a mask inside. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe there's something there. You know, there, there's a group, there's a uh, YouTube family called the Holderness family, and they do these kind of parodies that are more like broader. They're really good, actually, really funny shit. It, it's it's a little depressing because I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm that good anymore. I don't think mm -hmm. I can do it. I used to make a, it would be a spreadsheet and I'd have the original lyrics on the left and then the new lyrics and you'd have to kind of really time them out and make sure that they fit. That's what I'm and saying. Then, that's, I think that, that's yeah. tricky, yeah. It's tricky, yeah, but it's fun. It's a fun, it's like a puzzle to solve. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, there's cleverness, there's funniness, there's education, there's all the components you have to think. And it has to have a purpose. If there's no purpose, then it's then I, then I don't do it. Although uh, that did not apply to a song I did with Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You. Mm -hmm. It was uh, Nothing Compares to Poo. And it was about the different secretions and odors that we tolerate and don't tolerate in the hospital. And um, that was just pure, <laughs> it was, you know, it's, it's been 11 hours and 16 codes since I took your shift away. And it's all about, you know, nothing compares to poo as far as odors go. So when, um, before yeah. you were doing your parody videos, were you just singing and writing or were you doing like cover songs? What, what did you like to play? Yeah, no, I mean, I, would just, I just dick around with guitar and I like to sing in the car and I'm a shitty singer. And so, you know, it, it's one of those things, but you know, what's weird. Actually, I was thinking about this because I don't do that many public talks anymore because I just don't enjoy the travel and all of that. Mm -hmm. But 
it used to be because I'd have to perform these songs live as yeah, part of the show. Like, ah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You had to do vocal training. You'd warm up before the show. You do this performance. You do a sound check. You, you feel like a rock star, and you get to go out and be like. And I actually took a rock star with me, my audio producer guy, who was in this like kind of band in the '90s. Then they they were on MTV and stuff. And so he was like, "Dude, he's like, you're like." You, what you get to do for like thousands of screaming like doctors and nurses is like you, what I did, but like with none of the pressure. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's kind of nice. It's like basically karaoke for, for the masses. Fun. You know, we it keep talking about, and maybe maybe the listeners will want this. Uh, we do like a, a live VPZD. So if you're listening, you bring us out, do a live VPZD show. Oh, that would be amazing. Fly us out and do that. In front of a live studio audience. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Tonight's VPCD show is recorded in front of a live studio audience, just and like Frazier. They can pick the, they can pick the uh, topics that we discuss. Oh, that's, that is, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to skin, like, getting me fired up about doing speaking again. That would do it. Oh, man. And I'd take a 50% admit, pay cut. Well, to you have share to, because that's what I'm yeah. doing. No, no, exactly. I'll take the other, no, no. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you, I actually burned out, too, on... Um, the thing that I would do is like a lot of academic travel and giving lectures and uh, I burned right, out. Right. And, um, because at some point it's like, when, the moment you feel it predict, is predictable, you know, it's not as fun. And sometimes yeah. I like purposely, um, well, I hate to admit, well, th this week I had to get, I had to give a talk and I, I really pushed it to the last minute to make my slides because in, this, in the heat of the moment when you don't have a lot of time, I fe actually feel like maybe you're a little bit more creative. Like you just don't have time mm. to, to fall, you know, you just have to take the slides you got and go. And then I do this other thing that sometimes when I have to give a lecture, I have asked somebody who works with me um, if they don't mind putting together the slide deck. Um, and so I let them pick what they want me to talk about. And then I look at their slide deck and then I read about it and think, you know what I mean? So that, yeah. um, so that it's like, not me, like, otherwise don't like you, we all, I, I feel like I am going to gravitate to the things I always say. So if they pick the papers and such, I have to read those papers and understand them to talk about it. And so it forces me to get out of my comfort because like repetition is very boring, I think. Oh, it's, it's murderous. Murder. So, I mean, I mean, I, I've done this for how many years and like, I'm talking about health 3.0 and I'm doing all that. And so I have to switch it up and change how I do it. It has to be more spontaneous. You know, the last one I did was entirely improv and yeah. that's scary. And I don't think it was as good as my, my planned talk with slides and stuff, but at least it was authentic in the moment. And I'm doing a couple in the next couple months and it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to try to mix things up and experiment a bit and get the audience engagement, like having a more give and take with the audience. Like I do on my live shows uh, remote would be a lot of fun because they often will send you down rabbit holes, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that'd be fun. You and me, like a live VPC, or we could do like a real, like tonight on a special episode of VPCD. And it could be about like, you know, Arnold uh, from Different Strokes, like ends up like there's a creepy guy who's trying to molest him and this whole thing. That was actually an episode of Different Strokes. I really? Oh, yeah, I it was vaguely like, recall. Yeah, yeah Remember yeah. this? It was like, the, he was like, he's like, oh, would you like a piece I of was, candy? I was born in the 80s. I have a vague record. I don't remember that well. <laughs> it's, it's very foggy. Yeah, very I was foggy. coming of age in the 80s and it was just, oh man, I remember that episode is tonight on a very special Different Strokes. And afterwards they had like the whole cast came out and they're like, if you think anyone's touching you inappropriately, I was like, oh my gosh, you could do this on network TV back in the day. That was great. You know, and everybody I, watched. Which reminds me of like rewatching all these Frasers. I watched, I was like, watched Frasier like a lot when I was like, um, I don't know, in high school and a little bit in college. Um, and, um, you know, I, but now watching it again, I swear like 50% of the references 
I didn't get when I was in high school, and now I'm saying that, you know? <laughs> now they're making, yeah. Now they're making more sense. I, I want to go back and watch Three's Company again for some reason. I, that was something that I, I grew up with, and I, I didn't get most of it because I was a kid. And what was the reason the Three lived? They were just roommates. So, so the reason was they were broke and they wanted to save money and they were friends or something. And, and what so, was his name? Jack Tripper was his character. Jack name Tripper. Or? Yeah, his and name what? is John Ritter. Was the John Ritter. comedian he played? Yeah, who yeah. died of a uh, of a ruptured aortic aneurysm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the family sued um, because yeah. he went to Cedars and they pushed heparin. Something, something like, like that. that. Something, yeah, like, something that. like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a Libby Zion type of deal, mm. minus the residents. And uh, yeah, the whole the whole thing was a mess. And um, but yeah, the whole premise. It's so. I mean, it's so dated in that way. And yet it tells you how far we've come as a like society. People are like, we're going back to bigoted racism. No, no, we're not. Because that was real watch, racism. Watch that Three's was Company. It was much more like like homophobia. And mm. like, so the whole premise was Jack Tripper, in order to live with these two girls, had to tell the conservative landlord, Mr. Furley or Mr. Roper initially, that he was gay. Oh, because and that was the, uh, I see. Because they're, they're two beautiful women he's living with. Beautiful women he's living yeah. with, and uh, he couldn't live with them unless he was gay. Come and on, so, knock on our door. That's How right. We've been we've been waiting for you. Where the kisses are hers and hers and his three's company too. <laughs> oh man. It's and they had the Regal Beagle, which was the bar they used to go to, and Larry was like the kind of lounge lizard '70s guy that was their friend. It was a creeper, and they—I mean, the whole thing was misogynist and completely homophobic because mm. the, the Mister that was a central would, premise. It was a central premise. It's like, well, now he's got to pretend to be gay for Mr. Roper. Wow. And Mr. Roper kept calling him a fairy and making these little oh, twinkle wow. fingers. And oh, it was Terrible. crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. But at the time, everybody was like, you know, they would laugh. Wasn't it and one it, of the most popular shows on TV? By far. In the, yeah. But late 70s, early 80s, it was done, right? I think it was like 1980 and it, I think it ended in like 83 or something. And they had like a spinoff that lasted a minute, like three's a crowd that like lasted a minute. It was like when Happy Days ended, they, 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 they had, uh, Joni loves Chachi, and that lasted I for like see. a minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, you know, there's a lot you can actually learn from going back and watching old TV. I really think there's something there. It's a sociological uh, thing um, because there's a lot of beauty there too. You're like, oh, you know, remember when you could just have fun with stuff and f be like kind of celebrate our differences without the, the concern of like, oh, this is going to get us canceled or whatever you know, it is. I think those writers were free to write in a way that they never worried about that. And right. um, I mean, the other thing that I'm biased about is like, uh, I, I don't think I appreciated like just Kelsey Grammer, how talented an actor he is. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You know, he's Juilliard trained. And did you read about his life? His like sister was abducted and murdered. He had like another death in the family. I mean, he had a really tragic life. Uh, had a hard up. life and had hard a cocaine life. cocaine oh, problem, I think. They say by accounts, like when he was filming Frasier, he was high or hungover, just terrible shape. The moment they said action, he was Frasier. And the moment they said cut, he was Kelsey. And like, just wow. right. And, you know, the way he speaks, his like, his like- Cadences. The, oh, perfect. I mean, brilliant, brilliant timing, brilliant. And of course, David Hyde Pierce was just phenomenal. Even the father who I read that like, he didn't yeah. even pick up acting until he was in his forties. Um, wow. Yeah. There's hope for us, man. We could have a third career, like or a second. Yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of people who, late in life, do these things that just well, blow I mean, you away. I guess I would say that to some degree, that's already happening because 
you know, I mean, uh, 10 years ago, you'd say, are you going to be doing a podcast and YouTube videos? I would have said n no. Hell no. Right. Yeah. And by now, the way, congratulations. You're, you got your YouTube plaque. Oh, for, how'd you, uh, how'd you uh, notice? You see that in my uh, background? I see it in your background. A hundred thousand <laughs> plus subscribers. Conspicuously yes. placed. Like yes. All congratulations. See, you don't hang yours up in the background. You have it elsewhere. It's a, it's elsewhere, yeah. And you know why? Because I didn't get it until I had 500,000 subscribers or whatever. And uh, because because uh, they never gave it to me and I had to email them. And I'm like, you know, I never got a plaque. They're like, oh, we'll send you one. Did they just send you one or did yeah. you have to ask? No, they, they just sent you an automated email saying, you have now qualified. Please insert, oh. your, insert your name and we will mail it to you. Oh, that's nice, man. You've yeah. really grown your shit from nothing to huge in no time. And it's all deserved. You know, it's like you're you're not out there posing in a in a man bikini in a banana hammock trying to get likes. Let's Although, just say that that's an easy way to take have them take that plaque off the wall. <laughs> the counts will drop. Oh yeah, you have to actually send it back. You get an email saying we're reclaiming, we're sending thugs to come get your plaque. Actually, I wonder if it, what happens if you do lose followers. Like, lose followers. Do you take yeah. it away. Yeah, that's really interesting. But they also really sent some note. Like, all right, I think I looked it up. There's like now there's like. 200,000 different channels with 100,000 followers. It's huge. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's nuts. And then there's Yeah, like no, it's gotten really big. A yeah. Like lots with a million and like, but very few with 10 million or more. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a t that's an exponential strata. Yeah. But you know, there, there's not 10 million people on YouTube who want to learn about biomedicine. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> there may not even be a million. I don't, is there, oh, I guess, I guess Dr. Mike. But you know, well, so I don't Dr. know if they Mike want, has, do they want to learn about medicine or they want to learn but, about Dr. Mike? <laughs> I don't know yeah, what they exactly. want to learn about. Do, yeah. Dr. Mike is actually aimed more at a lay audience, you know? Yeah. So he's, yeah. Uh, you know what's crazy? I, it, 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 Cause YouTube, I've, I've not got that many um, uh, subscribers, but Facebook, like two and a half million yeah. and then another oh, half a million on, on, yeah. on, on Doc Vader's channel. And I'm like, why is that? Like, what's the, mm -hmm. is it just like, you know, middle-aged women like me? Maybe that's, cause I am basically a middle-aged woman. Like that's how I walk <laughs> through life. Those are your life. mannerisms. Those are, your Those are my mannerisms. Yeah. Exactly. I picked it up from my mom when she was a middle-aged woman and, and now I'm just that way. I don't, I don't know, but uh, it is interesting. Yeah. The two and the, and every, all the engagement, uh, is so different too, right? Like Facebook is so different um, than YouTube. It's a different, it's a, what, what works there is very different. So it's kind of fun, but yeah, I don't know Look where at it's this. all going. While we're talking and, you know, we had mentioned earlier in this podcast about like the kids don't like grades. Let me read you an actual tweet by Mark Andreessen, you know, the venture uh. capitalist, and he's quoting KQED News. Inside some of University of California's academic departments and colleges, an atypical idea is gaining steam, de-emphasizing or even ditching the A2F grading system and rethinking how to assess student learning. <laughs> oh. they, are, they are thinking about these things. What are they doing? Wow. Man, great. Remember when MIT did away with their SAT, but then they brought it back when they realized it was actually a useful tool? Yeah, and, and that's happening now with SAT. Uh, because of pandemic, there are schools that are not uh, requiring it. Uh, now, what's interesting is a lot of, I, I heard an NPR piece on this recently, a lot of lower socioeconomic status folks are, are applying now because they took away this uh, testing requirement. And they may have really good grades, but of course it's difficult to compare schools. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You uh, need some, some yeah. kind of merit-based thing, but I don't know how to do it in an I equitable way. I haven't looked at all the data, but I, my understanding of the data is the following, that like if you're lower socioeconomic status, it is very difficult to compete against higher income people. And that even though we think the SAT 
is a barrier, it actually works the opposite way. It's a it, it's a boon because like you're never going to be able to do whatever more traveling in China or you know more volunteer work or more you know all this nonsense that these kids say they're doing you know. But you right. can actually get a decent score and it can allow you to like really prove your your you know your competence. Oh, uh, interesting. So it, it can be an equalizer. It can be an equalizer. Yeah. And some people think it is equalizer, but you know, I'm, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now, there was some talk about the test itself is a little biased towards higher socioeconomic status. Like they use words like golf and, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know. No, I, there, I mean, there might be like cro the cro yeah. croquet, golf. Croquet, exactly. Exactly. Uh, beignet. Um, beignet. Yeah. Well, that's what I learned from watching Frasier. Um, like, <laughs> there's so many words that I don't think I really fully understood. But now that I now that I I, I sit pino with people like you, I know they're. <laughs> I've learned them all. I've learned them all. Z. Oh my god, dude! You should write a book for like the lay population. Like everything I learned needed to know in life, I learned from watching Frasier, and you could mm. go through the entire book. Oh wow! Right, dude. Man. It's actually, I bet it would be a bestseller. I mean, it'd be a bestseller. Um, Written by a world acclaimed physician, Dr. Vinay Prasad, uh, author of such hits as Malignant and uh, uh, Ending Medical Reversal. <laughs> but one thing he always does is drinks sherry. And, and to be honest, oh, yeah, I, right. I don't think I've I don't ever like drank sherry. much sherry. I mean, cook it, it with it tastes, a little bit. Yeah. It's good with almonds, actually. That's what mm -hmm. sherry is good for. But otherwise, it's a very odd, uh, very old fashioned kind of flavor. The other thing, profile. I think when Frasier the Show starts, he's got that apartment in Seattle, three bedroom. Um, and he's like 42 years old. I'm like, how, how's like, how much are they paying this dude? I mean, yeah. he, he was doing well for himself, huh? He was a, well, he's a psychiatrist, psychiatrist, right? Radio psychiatrist too, but yeah. Oh, right. He had the whole Dr. Drew thing going on. Yes. That's right. And, what um, a great premise. Yeah, and again, a spinoff, a spinoff spin of, of Cheers. Of Cheers, yeah. He's like yeah. the longest running character and um, yeah, fascinating. Wow. All right, really I, gotta, I gotta go do the Lord's work. <laughs> I gotta go do some work, real work. No, I usually work. say that when I'm about to go drop a deuce off at the, in, the, in the bathroom. <laughs> but yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, you never know. Um, <laughs> it can be the Lord's work. So guys, you know what to do. Um, subscribe to the show, leave a comment, leave a review. It helps us a lot. Mm -hmm. Share the show, all the other things. Anything else, VP? No, I think we will try to be back soon and uh, yep. have much more to talk about. And maybe if they have uh, topics they want us to talk about, rather than mm, specific individual questions that, <laughs> that are yeah, often very difficult we to can't answer. The yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but topics or themes, that would be good. We'd love to know, yeah. You yeah. can uh, you can hit me up, hello at zdogmd.com and just put hashtag VPZD in the subject line and that way I'll know it's a, a Z VPZD topic. Um, all right, guys, we love you, and uh, we're out. Peace, Until VP. Next time. Until next time.